Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 22. The Unexpected Task. Potter, Weasley, will you pay attention? Professor McGonagall's irritated voice cracked like a whip through the transfiguration class on Thursday, and Harry and Ron both jumped and looked up. It was the end of the lesson. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Casper, we just have a little bit over a week left of our crowdfunder. And what I really want to stress is how excited we are for everybody who's donated, regardless of amount, which is why we've set this 2,000-person goal. So one goal was to raise $75,000, and we are on our way. And the second goal, just as important to us, is the number of people who donate. So if you're thinking, well, I can only give a couple bucks, you are so welcome. And we would love for you to join us. So go to harrypottersecrettext.com, click on the big orange button, and send your donation our way. Together, we can do it. And just for $15, you get my eternal love. For $16? You get mine. (laughs) Yes, which I also love that this is now a competition between the two of us. Which you are winning. So if you are a Casper lover, first of all, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm a Casper lover. I mean, I'm also a Vanessa lover. Guys, I'm always going to beat him in the 30-second recaps. (laughs) So let's let him beat me in this. Donate $16. Keep my dignity intact. (laughs) Vanessa, I'm so excited about our guest storyteller today. Last year, I read a fabulous book called The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin. And it's this wonderful story of every month she tried to focus her attention on a different part of her life and make it happier. And one of the things I was really inspired to do was to start going to bed earlier. And I can't tell you 
what a difference it makes. Sometimes I get like on a YouTube train and I'm just like watching it till like 1am and then I wake up the next morning feeling like grouchy and like kind of hungover from YouTube. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So Gretchen is just, she's a fabulously engaging writer and she has a wonderful podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And Vanessa, you sat down with her to hear her story. Gretchen, you have a story about happiness for us. Yes, this is a story from my life from many years ago. And I was living in Washington, D.C. And at that time, I was working as a lawyer. And I was doing very well as a lawyer, if I say so myself. I had just graduated from Yale Law School, where I had been editor-in-chief of the Law Review there, the Yale Law Journal. And I was living in Washington, D.C. And I was clerking on the Supreme Court for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, which was a fantastic opportunity and something that I love to do. But As I was there, certain realizations began to press themselves into my mind. And one was, you know, I was surrounded by people who loved law. You know, all my co-clerks, there were like 30 of us, during the lunch hour, they were talking about the cases. And on the weekends, they were reading law journals for fun. And I thought to myself, you know, I do as little as I can get away with. You know, like I wanted to do an outstanding job for Justice O'Connor. I did the very best job that I could, but I didn't spend one extra minute on it than I had to, to do my job for her. And I was also getting pulled toward a subject. I had had a realization. I was outside on a bright day going for a, a walk on my lunch hour one day. And I thought, well, what am I interested in the world? Just sort of as an abstract rhetorical question. And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. And like in my mind, it became like power, money, fame, sex. And I just became compelled to do massive amounts of research on this subject. And I was reading about it and I was taking notes and I was thinking through like, what are these worldly passions? And around that time, I went over to the the house of a friend who was in education graduate school, and she had all these very thick, boring-looking textbooks lying on her coffee table. And I said, kind of dismissively, I pointed to one of them and I said, ah, is this what you have to read for your program? And she said, oh, well, you know, this is what I read on my own anyway. And I thought, oh my gosh, I want to be doing for my day job what I would be choosing to do on the weekend, just as she was. And I realized these people who loved law, they were doing law on the weekend. What was I doing in my free time on my weekends after work? I was writing and researching on this subject that I had made up. And that's when it occurred to me, that's the kind of thing a person would do if they were writing a book. And that's something that some people do as a profession. Some people write books. And that's when I really began to grapple with the possibility that maybe that's what I wanted to do. Maybe I wanted to be a writer. And as I allowed myself to think that through, I began to become more and more drawn to the idea of, well, maybe I need to give it a shot. Maybe I really need to give it a try. And then finally, I said to myself, well, Actually, at this point, I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And so I really need to give myself the opportunity to try. And it was at that point that I thought, okay, I'm not going to take another law job. I'm going to spend my time trying to write a proposal, trying to write an outline, try to get an agent, try to do everything you would do to try to write a book. And that is what I did. Thank you so much. That story resonates with me so incredibly because I remember the drudgery of when I worked at an education nonprofit of, 
you know, I like to think of myself as someone who works with integrity, but like going in right at nine, leaving right at five, at 4.55, not starting a new task because I was like, oh, that would keep me here past five. And I was not serving anyone by doing the bare minimum in that job. Everybody was losing out while I was doing that. Well, I mean, and that's the same thing with me. I was surrounded by people who loved law. You know, it, it's not that there's something wrong with law or that it's better to be a writer. It's just that it's better for me. But I think sometimes when you have this sort of idea of what you would love, it's scary to think like, if I never try, I always have this fantasy that maybe it's this alternative path. But if I try and fail, then I have to deal with that. But really, and this is what the happiness research shows, we're much more likely to regret the things that we don't do than the things that we do do. Yeah. You know, and I feel like this is something that we see in a very kind of concrete example in Harry Potter and the Unexpected Task, where he wants to ask out Cho Chang, he wants to take her to the Yule Ball, but he's scared. And he procrastinates asking her because he's like, well, until I ask her, she won't accept the offer, but she also won't reject it. And so he really does want to ask her, but he can't steal himself up. But at a certain point, he does. He takes his shot. And I felt like that's what I need to do. I need to take my shot. I need to either succeed or fail. And, and she turned him down. But he had tried. you know. And there's something that comes from having tried that you, you have that peace of mind. You're like, well, I asked. What's so interesting also is that we know that Harry is good at getting people on their own if he wants to. We, for a par days just a few weeks ago, we randomly put our finger on the line where Harry breaks Cedric's bag in order to get Cedric alone to tell him about the dragons. And so I know that Harry in this chapter says, like, why do they have to travel in packs about girls and why he can't access Cho? But we know that when Harry wants to do something, he finds a way to do it. So, and then in the end, he just says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And she's like, okay. I mean, it's like, you don't even have to cast a spell for that. I think it's just a symptom of his looking for a reason to procrastinate. And we've all been there when you're like, well, I'm waiting for the perfect time. I'm waiting for the perfect opportunity. I want to wait until she's standing by herself. I don't want to have to orchestrate a situation or ask, you know, and I think that's something like kind of in career with, with you and me, maybe we felt that where it's like, well, is there a perfect time to take a big, scary change. Well, if you're waiting for the perfect time, you may never find that perfect time because you might just be looking for a reason to procrastinate because you're scared. Well, thank you so much, Gretchen. It was so fun to talk to you. And our guests are always, you know, wonderful, but it is rare that we have a guest as wonderful as you who also loves to nerd out about Harry Potter as much. Well, I've been looking forward to this because there's nothing I like talking about more than happiness and Harry Potter. And so the idea of getting to talk about them both with somebody who's just as interested as I am, um, like that's the, my idea of a, of a perfect time. Everybody should go subscribe to the Happier Podcast with Gretchen Rubin and get her new book, The Four Tendencies. We're so grateful to you, Gretchen. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much. It was so fun to talk to you. So, Vanessa, it's time for our 30-second recap. Did you enjoy this chapter? This now is one of my all-time favorite chapters. It's about boys being pathetic. <laughs> I mean, that is for real. They are so pathetic. I love it. Okay. Ready for your 30 seconds? Yes. Here we go. Three, two, one. 
So McGonagall tells Harry, you have to ask somebody out on a date. It's like school mandated, which is so weird. And he's like, what? And I don't dance. And she's like, you will now. And so the whole chapter is about how nervous he is trying to figure out who he's going to take to the Yule Ball. And he really wants to ask Cho, but he keeps procrastinating. And people, because he's famous, just keep up and asking him. And he's like, no. And Ron is like, oh, Hermione, you're a girl. And she's like, great noticing, but I actually already have a date. And Jenny already has a date. And then finally, Harry just asks for he and Ron go with... Padma and Pavati. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God, the drama. So much drama. Casper, are you ready now? Uh-huh. On your mark. Get set. Go. I want to talk about the, like, love plot that is happening just below the plot, if it makes sense. Fred and Angelina, ugh, just dream body. Fred's like, yo, Angelina, you want to go to the ball? She's like, mm. Yeah, okay. Also, Peeves is hiding in the suits of armor because they're singing Christmas carols and Fleur de la Cour is just like, oh, this is so full. And uh, the Beaubaton and the Dormstrang kids are still around. And of course, who is Hermione going to the ball with if it's not someone that we know? So Ron keeps asking him, but he doesn't find out. That's what happens in this chapter. It's a cute chapter. It's a really cute chapter. So we're thinking about this theme of happiness, Vanessa. Where did you see it show up in the text? So we all know that procrastinating makes us unhappy. But I'm wondering what the difference is between procrastinating and taking a break. Because Harry clearly procrastinates on asking out Cho. But then he's taking a break from worrying about the egg, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. What's the difference between, like, procrastination and self-care of, like, yes, I have a deadline, but I'm going to watch this movie, Because we know that self-care and, like, taking care of yourself and taking a break is necessary for happiness. Mm. You can't be work, work, working all the time. And we know that procrastination makes us unhappy. Mm. But I'm not sure that I always know where the difference is. Oh, that's such a good question. I hadn't thought about that yet. I mean, I feel that Harry isn't just taking a break from the egg. I feel like it's more complicated because it's not as if he said, you know, on Tuesday on X date, that's when I'm starting my egg process. He's Right. He's it's not a break like it's the holidays. Right. I just got off this big thing. Right. On Monday, everyone's back to work and here we go. So I really appreciate that he's not moving from one stress zone into the other. It's so easy to fall into that trap. And he's given himself a little bit of space. But I think what's most interesting is, is he happier stressing about Cho than he is about the dragon or the egg? I don't think so. I think he feels even more lost and even less adept at doing it because he can't use magic here. He can't just summon a broom. It's not a logic puzzle that they can be in the library for. So I feel like he's kind of chosen the wrong task to execute. Why not stress about the egg for a week and make some progress (laughs) and then just arrive, you know, with a ghost as a dance partner? Well, McGonagall has said that he needs a partner. Yeah, but Harry breaks the rules all the time. He could have danced with a, you know, Dobby. Dobby would love it. (laughs) He should have asked Dobby to the dance. What a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think that this like dovetails into another component of happiness, which I'm wondering about compromise and happiness because mm. he has his heart set on asking out Cho. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how opportunities have to be right sized. And it almost feels like asking out Cho is too ambitious a goal for him mm. for a first ask out. She's a year older than he is. They don't really know each other. Why not ask out Ginny? 
When something is complicated and hard, I'm like, I'm just going to make a decision and keep it simple. So if I'm hosting a dinner party, that's a great opportunity to cook something that I've cooked a hundred times before that I know is going to be good. This is like not the time that I'm going to stress out and try to, you know, make Coco Van for the first time. Also, I'm not quite sure what Coco Van is, but I'm not going to try to do it (laughs) for the first time. And then too much of that, you're holding yourself to a low standard and you're never pushing yourself. And then you're like miserable and mediocre. But I do think that Harry would be much happier if he was just like, hey, Ginny, do you want to go with me? We'll have fun. And he would have had such a better time. Absolutely. That makes so much more sense. And I think it's this weird intensity that's created, especially around the dancing. Like it's forced romance in a way. And I think that's one of the things that makes us unhappy is when we're put into a situation in which we have to do something that just does not feel right to us. And at this point, Harry is just not ready for this developmentally, apart from anything else. I mean, the chapter is called The Unexpected Task, right? right? And this is another place in which you're supposed to be 17 in order to do this. He is, yeah, just literally too young. I just think that Reaching our full potential within right-sized opportunities is what makes us happy. Right. It's like the happy medium. We literally have a phrase for that. So a happy medium for Harry here could have been, you know, maybe get a group of people together that you walk in with. Just something that feels more within his range. Or maybe it's like preordained and it's like the Quidditch team is going to enter together. So, yes, he might dance with Angelino. He might dance with... Or, listen, Fred Weasley, there's some handsome guys on that team, Harry. Keep your mind open. Or he should have just asked Hermione. Well, let's talk about Hermione because it's an interesting and challenging piece in the text for me. Because Hermione here tells us that her teeth have been shrunk to a smaller size. There's this interaction with Draco where she's she's biting, saying like, he's like a ferret and, oh, is that moody behind you? And she shuts him up. And Harry notices kind of for the first time, oh, Her teeth are different. And she says, well, when Madame Pomfrey was shrinking them down, she said, I let her go on just a little bit further. I'm not going to lie. It's one of my favorite Hermione moments. (laughs) Especially with her parents as dentists. Like, it works on so many levels. But there is this challenging moment for me in which she suddenly is revealed in the next chapter as as this beauty. And for me, I want to ask the question about how much does our physical appearance have to do with our happiness? Because she seems to be happier in herself because she's happier with her teeth in this different size. Yeah, and we see that she's able to stand up to Draco in this new way. She has this renewed confidence. Right. I think that those things are complicated, right? Because I want to empower people to change things about their bodies that make them insecure, but then also to realize that It might not be the thing about your body that makes you insecure. But this is so complicated because on the one hand, I'm like, absolutely. You know, it's about what society standards put on you that makes you feel good or bad, whether her teeth are slightly sticking out or sticking in or big or small. Like, who cares? It's not about the inherent value of the teeth. And at the same time, you know, I'm doing this couch to 5K program at the moment. So I'm trying to get into running a little bit. And I feel objectively better about myself in just the physical exercise. And there's tons of research about the endorphins that are created during exercise, etc. So it's just one of those really challenging things of there's an external happiness that we get maybe by how we look or how we achieve status or, or how much money we earn. Or think of the Dursleys. What does the car look like? But there's also a happiness which is about... Do we live in line with our own values? Are we healthy in our, our, our body and our mind? Are we creative? 
I feel like there's two different types of happiness that we try and live up to. Well, I wonder if this opportunity had happened to Hermione of being able to fix her teeth in three or four years if she would have cared or would have come to love her teeth. Mm. I hated my curly hair when I was younger, and I love my curly hair now. I love your curly hair. Thank you. And to be clear, both Ron and Victor Crumb were super attracted to Hermione before she, quote-unquote, fixed her teeth. Right. And both Crumb and Ron like her after her hair hasn't been straightened. Ron just doesn't know what liking a girl actually means. He's still processing. (laughs) Yeah, he can't figure out what the heck is going on with him. But they both already like her, right? So the the difference is that shortening her teeth gives her confidence, which is wonderful. But I just really do believe that if this had happened to her when she was 20, she would have already found a way to love her teeth. I'm beginning to think about, you know, one of those pieces of advice that we're so often given that we can get in our brains, but I, I find it impossible to like get in my actual life, which is really that so much of what makes us happy is our presence to what is. If we can look around and see all the gifts that we are given, the relationships that we have, the opportunities and the health and the love by which we are surrounded, although it is not perfect and it is not everything we want, if we can right-size what we want to be what we have, that's how you're happy. But it's so hard. Yeah, I think that, you know, maybe one of the people who we should aspire to be in this chapter is Ginny. Mm. Ginny is so happy to be asked by Neville. And she doesn't have a crush on Neville. She likes Neville as a person. But she wants to be asked by Harry. But she's just, like, grateful to get to go to the dance. And she was asked by, like, a very nice young man. And she's going to have a good time. She seems to really be present to the fact that she's too young to go on her own. And I think at this point, she is completely accepting that she's never going to be with Harry. I mean, she's hardly on the page in these books. And so for her, it's like, oh, I get to go to an experience which most third years don't, right? Because Yule Ball is for fourth years and up. Plus, I'm going to spend time with Neville, who I like and respect. Yeah, what's not to enjoy? Even though it's not everything I want, I will be glad for what I have. I think we see a little bit of that with Harry, too, because the one thing in this chapter that you see making him consistently happy is his relationship with Ron. It's so sweet to have them back together. Absolutely. And I think that you don't know what you have until you've lost it. And so by getting a taste of what his life is like without Ron, he has this renewed sense of excitement and happiness. You know, most of my strongest friendships are with people who I've had sort of one big fight with. And I think going through that and having to figure things out together to some extent proves that you actually want the friendship. It wasn't convenience, that you're willing to go through hard times. And then that getting through that hard time sort of proves to both of us, oh, we are people who get through hard times together and come out on the other side and it's worth it. Well, and that has so much to say about happiness, I think, because happiness is not convenience. I think of Ernie McMillan. I think of characters who are friendly to Harry in one moment, and then there's an article in The Prophet, and he's anti-Harry, and he's avoiding him, or whatever. And it's not to say that people like that aren't worth our time, but it is clear about who is a friend and who is, you know, a fair-weather friend, and that real happiness lies in the relationships of the people who will stand with you even when everything is, you know, burning to the ground. Happiness sometimes is forged in flames, as it were. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Vanessa, I do want to point to something which I noticed in the text, which is that happiness is singing Christmas carols. The suits of armor are all polished up and they're all singing. And for me, there is nothing better than singing Christmas carols. And you know this because for the past few years, even though you have no connection to Christmas, you come to my black tie Christmas carol sing-along party. And literally, I could die happy at the end of that night every year. We just get together and either my husband or other friends of ours gets behind the piano and we just sing like 40 different Christmas carols in four-part harmonies, you know, in different languages. These suits know something about how to be happy and it's singing carols. So that's an interesting thing about happiness, actually, because I hate that party. <laughs> I I hate getting dressed up. I don't like Christmas carols. And I'm Jewish. I don't know how to read music. There's like nothing about this party that's comfortable for me. (laughs) Except I love going every year because it makes you so happy. And it makes Peter, my partner, so happy that I have a great time. I literally just sit on the couch in the corner. I do not participate. I sit there and watch you guys be so happy. And I do think that that says something about happiness. Watching other people be happy. We all have this, right? Watching kids play at the playground. If you're walking by and you see that, it just makes you smile. Well, actually, that's an idea that I love, which is the infectious nature of happiness. I mean, you see this when the springtime comes. I mean, we live in New England where It's snowy and it's cold and it's dark. And then suddenly when time changes, when the sun comes out, people lose layers of clothing. It's like everyone is reborn in some way. Flowers are blooming. Trees are springing green leaves. It's just in the air. And I feel like this is something about the human being 
as an organism that we don't fully understand yet, which is how we interact with the world around us and with other people in terms of that kind of infectious nature of feelings. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things I know you tease me about how much I love my dog. But one of the things I love about her is when on a walk with her, people just look at her and smile. Just her, like, being cute and being willing to say hi to people. It's like walking around with a smile maker, right? Mm. And it's such a fun thing to just walk around with something that makes people happy by existing. I love that. That makes so much sense. And also the fact that it's a shared experience. There's a smiling at a dog that you see randomly but there's also knowing that its owner is right there and kind of wanting to communicate connection. Like happiness is a gift that we can't hold on to. It's something we always pass on. And that we want to share in, which goes back to your Christmas party, right? Even though I don't like any of the activities, I would never want to miss it because I don't want to miss witnessing people I love being so happy. So I genuinely enjoy it. Also, your husband makes the best eggnog. It's true. He has some culinary skills. Yeah. Casper, is there one last point that we want to make about happiness? Yeah, there's one final point that I want to think about, which is Harry is living in this place of hopeful possibility when he's thinking about asking out Cho. And he thinks of Cedric in a respectful, kindly way. You know, it's no longer a big rivalry. You know, he's kind of chummy. And then Cho says, oh, I'm sorry, Harry. I've already got someone else I'm going with. Because she's from Scotland, right? And then suddenly, Harry hates Cedric and he's awful and he's a pretty boy and he's a weakling. And I was just thinking about how fickle happiness can be. Like, I'm beginning to think, is there a difference between happiness and joy? Is happiness always fleeting? Yeah, happiness is not my favorite feeling. My favorite Mm. feeling is, I think, one of love, rather. Feeling loving and feeling loved. It's not necessarily happy, right? Because you can be sad with someone and feel loving towards them Mm. and feel loved by them. Mm. And the world is going to hand you sadness. I mean, just in the natural course of the world. And so to me, there's something much more comforting about being in community, feeling in kinship with someone that makes me feel happier than happiness. Yeah, I'm suddenly seeing this image of love as a ring or as a container. And like in that whirlpool, you get days of happiness and days of sadness. But if you can have that thing that holds it all, that's what gives meaning over time and and a sense of who you are. I mean, I think it's great to have friends who you have fun with. But true friendship to me is someone who I can have fun with and also someone who I can be sad with. And to me, the transactional bit of it or the thing that I want to be working toward always is love and not happiness, right? It's so interesting in this country. And I'm I'm curious if it's the same in England. But, you know, it's in our foundational document that you are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I wonder how much they fought over that word. And it's like, why not life, liberty, and the pursuit of love? Mm. And I wonder if our country would be different if it was a different word. Mm. In England, it's the pursuit of good tea. Mm. That's really all. Which is happiness. Amen. So, Casper, this week we are going to do Flora Legia again. Uh, This one is one of my faves. We say that about every practice. (laughs) I know, because they're all so good. But I really do love this one, too. I love it because... 
It's really about a love of words, right? There's mm-hmm. this fundamental belief in Florilegia that certain words can pop off the page mm-hmm. and just mean something to you. And that when you walk through a countryside in one direction and you see one view, and then when you walk back in a different direction, it's a completely different landscape, even though you're in the same place. I feel like it's the same with these words. So Casper, Florilegia is where we allow a sentence to sparkle at us, and then we put the sentences next to each other. So which sentence jumped out at you, sparkled at you? I was really struck by this one. Didn't even answer. What about you? I picked a well-spotted. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So why did you pick your sentence? Well, this one is from when Ron is returning from his ill-fated attempt to ask Fleur Delacour to be his dance partner for the ball. And it's an embarrassing moment for Ron. She's talking to someone else and he just goes up to her and asks her, you know, do you want to go to the ball with me? And she doesn't even answer. She just, you know, he says she looked at me like I was some sort of slug or something. And this is him returning like shamefaced and really trying to make sense of what he just did. Like it was an out of body experience, but it's his realization of, oh, I am nothing. (laughs) You know, I'm so far below this beautiful woman. She didn't even answer. God, it makes me think of a boy that I was so in love with and his name was Oliver and his birthday is on Valentine's Day. And this is a little creepy, but he loved Holland and so I found some like traditional Dutch cookies and I found out where he lived and I got entrance to his building and I made a homemade Valentine's card and left these cookies there. And I didn't write my name in the card, but I made it really obvious that it was me and he never even mentioned it and the next day I was still kind of maybe hoping I'd hear from him but like by a week later I was like oh god this is the most humiliated I've ever felt so I just really identify with Ron. (laughs) Vanessa how about you? It's funny I don't feel like I usually pick a sentence for such a personal reason but I did as well This oh-well-spotted moment is when Ron says to her, Hermione, Neville's right. You're a girl. (laughs) Because it's occurring to him for the first time that he can ask Hermione to the ball. And her response is, oh, well-spotted. And I feel that very keenly as somebody who grew up with brothers. And then I was in an improv troupe in college, and it was like me and nine boys. And... Constantly feeling as though my gender was always an issue. Either they were forgetting that I was a girl or they were actively treating me as if I was a girl. And either way, it just felt like a thing. And those moments where it became truly explicit were just so exhausting to me. And so I feel like Hermione is just perfect in this moment of like, yes, genius. Thanks for noticing. And I think I also like that she gets angry rather than getting excited. She's secure enough in this moment to not sort of like take this scrap that's being thrown at her of your girl. A needier version of this answer would have been like, yeah, why Why do you say that? And instead she's just like, you doofus. Mm. Both of these quotes are kind of like about being invisible. Yeah, and it's really interesting that they are like Ron and Hermione both feeling invisible. So let's put the two sentences in conversation with each other. Do you want to read yours? Didn't even answer. Oh, well spotted. Ooh, 
Yeah. What do you hear when you put those two together? Can we do it one more time? Didn't even answer. Oh, well spotted. You know, what it's making me think of is that in some way I'm beginning to think of how actually this doesn't reflect badly on Ron. It reflects badly on Fleur. Yeah. Harry is certainly unskillful in saying no to the girls who ask him out. But he answers them, right? There's at least some dignity that they are worth a response. And so I feel like actually what this combination of sentences is helping me see is that, yeah, well spotted, Fleur is not someone that you would want to want. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think the same goes for you and the boy who you left the cookies for. Yes, Oliver. I No, but I think it reflects badly on him to not say anything. But you know what? Now I'm suddenly rushing with empathy also for Fleur and for Oliver <laughs> in the sense that, like, what do you do with something like that? I mean, it is awkward and Harry's response is awkward at best as well. I mean, I agree you can always give an answer and say thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no, you can do that. <laughs> you can acknowledge that the other person exists. I don't know if for Oliver he thought on some level you didn't want a response because you didn't sign your name, right? right? And right. so it's like trying to respect anonymity, I think, can be a complicated right. middle ground. But if it's coming up to you like Ron has to flare. Then you at least have to have the dignity of responding I think there's gender roles at play if we extrapolate from this specific example, which I don't want to do. Let's keep it just between Ron and Fleur. But you're right. You know, I'll stick to my original insight that this has something to say more about Fleur than it does about Ron. Should we read it the other way around? Yes, please. Oh, well spotted. Didn't even answer. Do you know what it spoke to me? I mean, this is totally not in the text. Mm. But when you see something, but you don't say something. Oh, tell me more. You know, I mean, Harvard Square is a great place to contemplate homelessness. Mm. I constantly see people who are homeless on the street who I don't engage with. But I see them, but I don't know what to say to them, Mm. right? Like, I say hi when I can. and, Mm. And I'm wondering if not knowing the right thing to say shouldn't stop us from trying. And I think nowadays we're so scared of being publicly scrutinized for not saying the perfect thing. But saying something imperfect is better than silence. And I think we have to start supporting each other for trying to say the right thing rather than tearing each other down for not saying it as well as we could. As long as you say it with some good intentions, right? It wouldn't be okay if Flora was like, ugh, gross. Right, absolutely. Yeah. No, I totally hear you. Casper, thank you for doing Florilegia with me. Thank you for walking through this field of flowers together. Mm. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A voicemail today is from Amanda Patton. Hi, Ariana Casper and Vanessa. It's Amanda calling from New York City. I love your podcast. Thank you so much for the good work you do. And I just listened to your episode on trauma in the chapter Bobaton and Durmstrang. I was really interested in your sacred imagination of Madame Maxime and her grand entrance into Hogwarts. I liked how it made me think a lot more about her character. And it also made me think about my grandma. My grandma was a very strong woman, like Madame Maxime, and she was very, very proud. She was also from the Basque country of Spain. But living in the U.S. in the 50s, she didn't want anyone to know that she was Basque. She went by her first initial instead of her full Basque name, and she never really spoke her first language, which was Spanish. When she had three children, my father and his two brothers, she thought their lives would be easier if they assimilated into American culture. And she never really taught them much about her Basque culture. Later, when my father was in junior high, he took a Spanish class and he ended up getting a D. He knew his mom wouldn't be happy with his grade, but he didn't expect what she would say when he showed it to her. She said, A D in Spanish is an insult to me. He couldn't understand why she was so insulted when she had never seemed to be proud of her Basque culture. She had never even taught him a word of Spanish. But that reminded me of your questions about Madame Maxime and how she could be so proud of her size and yet seem ashamed when someone insinuates that she might be half giant. I think we should be gentle with her in these moments. I don't think she's really ashamed of who she is, but I think she's acting out of fear. I started to wonder about her childhood and her process of growing up, whether maybe a parent had told her not to tell anyone ever that she was part giant because she was growing up in such a dangerous time. Maybe someone lied to her and told her that she was not half giant. So I wanted to offer a blessing to Madame Maxime. I think she's allowed to define her identity in her own way and to maybe not reveal it uh, to everybody. And I wanted to offer another blessing to anyone else who is proud of who they are, but who has a complexity with that pride. You're allowed to still have pride in your identity, even if you can't share it with everyone all the time. 
Thanks so much, Amanda. Yeah, I love that idea that there's actually kind of multiple layers going on for Maxime here and to maybe be a little bit more empathetic to her situation. Yeah, assimilation and identity are really hard concepts to deal with. And I think in the United States, we see that a lot with our culture. I even think about, like, I've changed the way I pronounce my last name. Yeah. I, it, and I hear the way that, like, at a coffee place, you'll say Casper. Right. Water. Yeah. <laughs> Just so people can understand me and I don't have to deal with the endless kind of back and forth. But, yeah, I, I don't pronounce my last name as it should be. In Dutch, Terkola, I say Terkyle, which Terkyle rhymes with smile. So I'm all about it. But it is different. And I do wonder what that means. Would you prefer that I say Terkyle? I mean, that's the challenge is it's a it's a really difficult like it's a sound. The O sound is not one that English speakers are used to. Oh, oh, (laughs) thanks, Amanda. We get it. (laughs) (laughs) So, Casper, it is now time for us to offer a blessing. And I would like to offer a blessing for Miss Angelina Johnson which I just blessed her a couple weeks ago. But I love that when Fred asks her out, she looks him up and down and then is like, yeah. Because I think that sometimes we romanticize what these moments are supposed to be. And especially now in like the YouTube age, there are these like promposals and all these big romantic gestures. And I just think that romance is in these small moments and that friendship and love should be much more intertwined than they are. At the end of the day, I really do think that relationships are about friendship. And I just love this friend moment. And Fred just looks at her and is like, hey, do you want to go to the dance with me? She looks at him and is like, yeah. Not only that, he says, oh, I'm going with Angelina before he's even asked. My blessing is not for Fred and his arrogance. My blessing is for Angelina accepting this lovely invitation from a guy who she clearly likes and doing it so coyly and lightheartedly. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? I wanted to bless Cho. We never really get to know her very well at all during these books. Um, But she's quite a pivotal character, especially in this chapter where she's been asked by both Cedric and Harry, both of the Hogwarts champions. I guess I I wanted to bless her because of her kindness. We talked about maybe how you might let someone down if you're asked a favorable question, but the right answer is no. And she does it with such grace. You know, she doesn't even tell Harry who it is until he asks. I just feel like she's being extremely sensitive throughout the whole thing. And I guess for anyone who maybe has to share difficult news this week or let someone down, I feel like Cho is showing us how to do it with kindness. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. We love them. Our crowdfunder is still live, and we are eager for you to join us. Go to harrypottersacredtext.com and click on the big orange button. Next week, we'll read Chapter 23, The Yule Ball, through the theme of guilt. This episode was produced by Ariana Nettleman, me, Casper Terkyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're part of the Panoply Network. This week's voicemail is from Amanda Patton. Thanks as ever to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Julia Argy, and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week, everyone. Can you just say Casper Turkow the real way once? Casper Turkow, Ugh, oh, I love it. <laughs> That was a little Stephanie Purcell embodiment moment. Mm, I love those. Sometimes I just put on her clothes to have that moment.
sneak into her house and crawl right in. 